Hey everyone, Ida here, and you're listening to Sane New World. Today, I'm chatting with Samuel Arbisman. Sam is a scientist in residence at Lux Capital, a venture capital firm that invests in startups that are bridging the gap between science fiction and science fact. He is the author of the books The Half-Life of Facts and Overcomplicated, Technology at the Limits of Comprehension. His writing has appeared in such outlets as The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and The Atlantic. He is also a research fellow at the Long Now Foundation. Previously, Sam was a senior scholar at the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation and a research fellow in the Department of Healthcare Policy at Harvard Medical School. He received his PhD in computational biology from Cornell University. In this episode, Sam and I chat about his somewhat unconventional career path that led him to becoming a scientist in residence at a VC fund, how institutions could support more alternative and unconventional roles for thinkers, we talk about objectives versus serendipity when it comes to how we relate with work and what delightful computing means to us. Many of my favorite topics are wonderfully wrapped up into this one conversation. I hope you guys like it. Now I bring you Samuel Arbisman. Okay, I'm here with Samuel Arbisman. Sam, it's really great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for being here. Super. So um, yeah, to get started, with the conversation today, uh, maybe it would be nice for you to just give a little context to yourself and your background and what kind of things do you care about in the world? Sure. Uh, that's a very broad question, but I'm excited. Um, yeah. So in terms of like my background and what I'm doing now, um, so I, I'm currently a scientist in residence at, at Lux Capital. So it's a, a emerge, emerging tech venture capital firm. Um, I would say the kind of more fun way to describe it is anything that feels like science fiction. That's the kind of stuff we like to think about. Um, and my role uh, as scientists and residents is to kind of explore the landscape of science and technology and find areas that we should be involved with in some way. Um, or, uh, whether And then based on that, kind of uh, find um, companies to invest in, find people we might want to build companies around, find, uh, find ways of connecting those areas that I'm exploring to our community of companies we've already invested in, our, our portfolio. Um, but a lot of it's also kind of upstream from investments. I spend a lot of my time uh, interacting with the public through writing and speaking and kind of just exploring ideas and communities such that when those areas are kind of ripe for investment, we'll be able to hit the ground running. And so um, practically what that means, though, is I kind of have this like running list of lots of different ideas that I'm exploring um, at, at any one point. Uh, and then I kind of do a combination of uh, reading and writing about those ideas, engage, like connecting to well, interesting people and talking to them and then kind of bringing them into kind of the, the Lux orbit. Um, in terms of my, my background, of like how I got to this point of like what I'm doing, what I'm doing, um, I have a background in, in, in science. Um, I got my, uh, I have a PhD in computational biology. So I got my start actually studying uh, evolutionary biology. Uh, but then uh, because of, uh, because I was part of this uh, interdisciplinary fellowship program in graduate school around, I guess, uh, nonlinear and dynamical systems, I got very interested in kind of understanding the ideas of complexity science and kind of big complex systems, regardless of whether or not they were within biology or social systems or, um, or technological systems or really kind of any sort of area. I just was fascinated by this idea that you can use computational and mathematical modeling to understand large complex systems and the, the network of interacting parts, um, regardless of their different domains. Uh, and so, uh, uh, I mean, that, that's certainly been like one through line in kind of a lot of things I think about kind of using these models and these mental frameworks of 
from complex systems to kind of understand whatever I'm looking at. Um, and so after I finished the PhD, I did a postdoc in uh, kind of more of the same kind of understanding networks of interacting humans and, and understanding the quantitative ways that science and technological change actually kind of develop and innovation occurs. Uh, then spent several years in the foundation world. I worked for the Kauffman Foundation, their Department of Research and Policy. And then a little over eight years ago, I joined LOX. And I've been with them ever since, kind of exploring all these kind of weird ideas at the frontier, um, from complexity science to kind of thinking about um, different ways of uh, using computation, kind of the future of computing, uh, the nature of simulation. I'm kind of interested in probably too many different things, but I would say it's sort of like radically interdisciplinary approach to knowledge along with sort of this like omnivorous curiosity about everything that kind of those are sort of the through lines yeah. of uh, the different things does anyone else have the same job as you as far as you know like is the like resident wait what is it a, a scientist in residence right that's what the scientists in residence yeah so so around the time i started at lux i actually reached out to a number of other folks who kind of had somewhat similar titles in the venture world um and chatted with them and it turned out we were all doing pretty different things um that being said over like over the course of like the time that I've been at Lux, I've been collecting people like like titles of like like interesting outlier roles within the world of the venture capital, and there actually is kind of this like non-trivial number, not not a lot, um, but I've I've seen like research partners. Um, I think at one point there was one firm had a philosopher in residence. I've seen a writer in residence. Now, of course, what it says on the tin, like the actual title, doesn't necessarily accord. Um, always with like what they're actually doing but there is a small group of people kind of with these sort of like more outlier roles um and and, and maybe this is kind of like me just like trying to kind of like make me feel better about my own role but i definitely feel like both in venture as well as a lot of companies more broadly especially in the, the tech world um there needs to be more of these kind of outlier roles because i think when a, an organization um is is doing its thing oftentimes a lot of people are like fairly specialized they're kind of yeah focusing on their specific thing. Um, and there is a space, th there's kind of a need for creating a space within a larger organization for kind of a little bit more undirected play and exploration of topics. And so um, having this kind of role that kind of acts as sort of like a uh, interstitial connective tissue or whatever it is, or kind of like providing a certain amount of optionality and kind of like, and, and one of the, one of the things, so one of, one of the founders of Lux, he always talked, uh, Josh Wolf, he talks a lot about the, the need for um, randomness and optionality. Um, and kind of because you don't really know where interesting ideas or where interesting connections with people are going to happen uh, and, and where they're going to come from. And so I feel like my role is acting as sort of like a like um, and an, 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 uh, um, like some sort of optionality machine. And, and like my job is to kind of like create these conditions for optionality. And so uh, yeah, I definitely think there, there should be more of them. But uh, but yes, we are still very few and far between. Yeah. Do you think that it's something that is going to be like more of a trend and uh, a ubiquitous existence for these type of roles or for like, you know, jobs at the intersection of thinking and of innovation and of development? So in other words, maybe like tech and academia and beyond are going to have more of these with just considering like the direction that a lot of the sort of tech world and the job market is going to especially like with the rise of ai or uh is that too optimistic of a stance <laughs> um it it might be on the uh, on the optimistic side i don't know if it's overly optimistic i i think right now there's just in it it's not always uh, easy for organizations 
uh, certainly at the, like the at the leadership level to kind of recognize that this is the kind of thing that's important. Um, one of the and so one of the things that I think might be happening is re rather than there being kind of at the individual level within large organizations, I think people are going to be thinking about possibly new types of organizations that a lot like that kind of are sort of like the institutional version of that kind of thing uh, of like yeah. this kind of thing. And so one of the other things I've been thinking a lot about is like not like the need for non-traditional research organizations. Um, right? The way I think about it is it's great that and we can do research in a university. We can do research in corporate industry labs. You can even do research in like deep tech startups. But the truth is those are just three points in some weird high dimensional space of potential institutions uh, and organizations. And we should actually be exploring this organizational space of like, are, are there other kind of weird organizations that um, maybe are some sort of hybrid of these different kinds of things or kind of don't fit. And so um, I wonder if, uh, I definitely think there should be at the individual level, people with these kind of like weird misfit roles, uh, and I'm using misfit in the best possible sense, but uh, alongside that, I think we also need kind of misfit organizations to kind of help allow people to kind of see the true breadth of uh, institutional possibilities that there are, and so whether and it's and, yeah. and, and and there is, and actually I've been I've been um, collecting examples over, over over the past few years. Um, I have this kind of list on my website called the Overedge Catalog, which kind of and the 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 term Overedge is this thing I found it in kind of a I think it was in a glossary from cartography, and the idea is most maps they're kind of within some sort of like rectangular bounds, but occasionally because um, of the shape of some mountain or some other thing. There's sometimes a little part that kind of goes outside of those boundaries, uh, and those, those are what are referred to as overedges. And I thought, okay, these are kind of the like like an overedge is also a lot of these weird misfit organizations. And I've been finding a lot of these different organizations, and and they and they have all different kinds of structures. And so some are for profit, some are non profit, um, some fund people instead of projects, some some fund specific projects instead of people, um, some uh, think in terms of like more like shorter term research, some are kind of longer term. Some are distributed, some have a very specific location. There's all different, and the way I kind of think about it is there's all these different dimensions, kind of parameters that we can kind of switch on and off for what the structure of an organization can look like when it's thinking about kind of this weird intersection. Uh, and we just need to try to actually explore the space more. Yeah, but but wouldn't you say that universities traditionally like hold that position much more, that universities used to have like much more of an open possibility and more resources in many locations for people to just have the time to think and to develop ideas and projects without the pressure of like today's maybe like academic requirements that take a lot of the time away from just thinking and doing to managing and emailing and teaching um, that ideally like university would be these like magical places in which people could actually just go to explore and to think. I mean, from what I think about, like if I think about how some elite universities functioned 100 years ago, that was, or longer, that was kind of the, that was the idea. No, it wasn't as full of obligations towards other commitments or jobs as it is today. But, or what do you think is the difference between this sort of like idealized idea of university and between sort of alternative research organizations and what you're talking about? So um, I'm not, I'm not entirely certain that like that kind of like idealized version was ever, was ever fully true within universities. I mean, there, I think there definitely was a little bit more flexibility. Um, but I mean, I, 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 there are many instances of, um, of like individuals who might be doing interesting things and um but not but not necessarily able to kind of fit within an academic environment and kind of the way i think about it is at least within science like there's like 
this whole space of things that are valuable for science to move forward. But then there's like only a subset of those things that are actually valued by scientific academia. In other words, like like there are the there's the set of activities that get you tenure, and that set is a subset of all the other things that could be done. And so certain types of activities in terms of like like I don't know walking through a lab and just kind of giving out ideas or certain things around um, uh, like creating software that can kind of allow people to do their research better or other types of publication aside from the um, the, the journal article, those kinds of things. Um, sometimes they're sometimes they are supported, and people can do those kinds of interesting things within academia. But by and large, there's kind of just this broader set of activities that are a little bit harder to support. And so I think these alternative institutions kind of allow people to kind of think about, okay, what are the things that we should be doing that are valuable towards science or research or kind of I mean, the progress of knowledge or whatever it is. Um, some of which might be valuable, like might be valued by academia, but other ones are not. Um, and so it's just kind of creating that space. That being said, there are ways of um, kind of finding spaces like that within universities to kind of do some of these kinds of things, but it's often far less legible because like sort of right. like the, the the baseline, like tenure track faculty position is just like a certain kind of thing. Um, there are other ways of doing it, but you kind of have to like shoehorn yourself in or kind of come through the side or kind of talk with maybe some people in the in the positions of leadership, but, um, but it might be possible. Um, that being said, I mean, you were, you were also talking about with like academia and kind of how it was maybe a hundred years ago. Um, and, and there's, and there's, there's many ways in which academia has kind of changed. I mean, the, like the idea of like, like, like peer review of journal articles, we think of this as kind of like the gold standard and something that's like, like that we always need to have. It's fairly recent. Um, I think if I'm remembering the story correctly, I think like Einstein was like super upset when like one of his articles, like one of the editors said like, oh, one of your articles is going to go out for peer review. He's like, no, no, this is not how it works. And I'm pretty sure even the paper for um, the structure of DNA by Watson and Crick, I don't believe that was actually peer reviewed. So like, and like that was the 1950s. So these kinds of things, the, the, the structures that we kind of view as like a given are actually newer than we might realize. And so there might be space for yeah, flexibility. Yeah, interesting. Well, going back to kind of you and your role and the way that you relate with ideas and information in the world, like what would you say is your relationship with ideas and the pursuit of information or how, how do you go about it? Like, I know it's a really weird question to ask, but just, you know, if you if you try to sort of like self-analyze, like how you relate with the world in terms of ideas and the development of new ideas and uh, like, is there anything to say to that? That's a good question. I mean, I would say, I mean, so some people, um, like when they're like examining the landscape of science and technology or just thinking about ideas, they often take a kind of very um, like deliberate sort of like roadmap kind of process, of like, okay, trying to understand every single aspect of different things. Um, and, and I definitely think there's a great deal of um, I have to admit that my approach is much more kind of curiosity driven and like undirected and kind of almost like magpie like where i'm just like oh these are interesting things i want to kind of connect them and then i'll figure out kind of later how they how they interact um and so uh and so, so there's um this great book by uh ken stanley and joel layman they're both um computer scientists involved in like the, the realm of ai um the book is called why greatness cannot be planned and the idea behind it is when you're dealing with some sort of like really high dimensional search space oftentimes a kind of like undirected approach um, towards like optimization or whatever, or finding some uh, optimizing some fitness function is actually really better. Um, and you kind of like want to optimize on interestingness or novelty or curiosity rather than kind of just trying to go towards some specific goal. Uh, because 
those are sometimes the best ways of exploring the search space. It's almost like you kind of like find interesting things and then find ways to connect them, which in turn lead you to other things. And, and they refer to these as like stepping stones and kind of like there's this common world process of stepping mm-hmm. stones. And for me, when I think about my relationship with ideas and information, like that kind of approach really resonates where it's like I am just collecting stepping stones and ideas and then kind of putting them together in certain ways. Um, and then almost like after the fact, I can kind of see the path that kind of led me towards where I am and kind of where my thinking is. Um, and then I would say combined with that, I certainly have um, the kind of like the sort of the, the classic thing of like, I, le- I I think through my writing. So like I kind of like figure out what, how I think about certain ideas when I kind of sit down and write and kind of begin to sort of stitch together different different bits of information. Um, another thing is uh, I, I'm, I'm big on lists. I, I mentioned this idea of like the overage catalog and kind of collecting all these kind of like, like weird um, non-traditional research organizations. Uh, I actually have a whole bunch of lists that I, I that, that, that I'm really that, that I've collected. It's oftentimes like when when a certain theme uh, emerges in my mind or has been rattling around for long enough, I'm like, okay, I just need to like put this list online, kind of get it out of my head. Um, so I have lists around um, like non-traditional educational institutions. Um, I have a list of like what I consider like a canon of like a modern wisdom literature. I, I can go into more of that, but like I have a list of like tech companies that were um, based on names from like the world of Lord of the Rings. I, I, I just find kind of like lists a very useful um, way of extracting themes of uh, so like for example um i've been thinking a lot about the um the, like the future of computing and kind of more delightful ways of of it being involved in computing and then alongside that i've also been very interested in kind of like generative art and creative coding and and a number of different themes and at a certain point i realized oh wait this is all just a kind of a different facets of this sort of like delightful and wonderful engagement with computing. And so at that point, I kind of create a list of what I call yeah. the garden of computational delights. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I'm just big on, so th- I would say a combination of lists, kind of emerging themes, writing, connecting things, kind of like finding unexpected interactions. I, I love it when I can like smash together certain things from like the humanities and the sciences and the technology uh, and technology. I, I think like kind of the, the more unexpected, the better. Um, but yeah, I would say, th- anyway, th- those are sort of kind of my, um, my touchstones in terms of how I think about my own approach to ideas and information. Yeah, it's it's sort of like you build categories in order to break down categories, so, which is amazing yeah. and hilarious. Oh, thank um, you. I read the I read the I read the book Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned, and I really loved it as well. And there's so many similarities between like the themes that the authors there are um, talking about, and then this book called. Um, Leisure, the basis of culture, written by this German philosopher called Joseph Pieper, like post-World War II Germany. Um, and a lot of them just like talk about how you need to actually sort of have space and leisure and this like open field of ability to sort of discover and listen without any specific objective. An objective can be considered not just in the sense that you're trying to achieve something very specific at work, but that you're trying to work in general in order to achieve something, even if it's sort of like, even if it's work, even if it's undefined and you don't know what you're achieving, but if you're trying to achieve something, it still kind of falls into the same category. So I find that like stuff so interesting and actually like I think would help a lot of people, at least it has for me to remove a lot, a lot of the pressure out of this idea of like having to have a a career that is consistently progressing in some kind of arbitrary direction that you needed to go into. 
Um, because I think most people feel that type of pressure that they feel time passing and they're constantly seeing if they're at the level that they should be and if they're progressing from one level to another. Um, and I do think that it's a way of like kind of getting stuck into a like a potential like channel in which you don't necessarily need to or want to be stuck in in the first place. And as with startups, I mean, if you think about like pivoting and at times you take like, you know, two steps back to go three forward, or you take some side steps to move into another direction. Like it's all this kind of open field of exploration. And I, I'm a big believer just thinking about like how things have gone insane. And like my own experiences with startups is that if you're like set on just achieving specific objectives without being able to like in do some of that like serendipity and creativity in there, you're going to miss some of the most like important moments for being able to uncover something um, completely different that actually takes you to like 10 levels forward in a way. So yeah, it's a great book. Definitely recommend everyone to, to read it. And also the one by Joseph Pieper that kind of goes like deeper, but into the same sort of like ideas and topics. Um, yeah. That's great. You know, I, I love this idea of like, yeah, being less concerned about like the forward motion of one's career and kind of, yeah. And, and actually, yeah, related to kind of the yeah, under, like, like whatever, I think, or yeah, you can't just kind of do it. I'm like, okay, on this, on this like clear ladder, like it needs to be more undirected. And you should be focusing on kind of the activities that you are enjoying or that kind of provide meaning and purpose or kind of the, um, like the thing, yeah, like, like the things that are kind of just more interesting. Like, like that, I think, is a much more important way of, yeah, thinking about even one's career as opposed to just like, oh, I have to do this. And if I do this, then I'll be happier, then I'll be moving forward. And then, of course, there's always another one. And so rather than kind of just, like never being satisfied, kind of saying, okay, like what are the things that actually do provide kind of this meaning and satisfaction um, and then trying to optimize for those um, yeah. because then it's like, it, yeah, it's a game you can never stop playing because it's just, there's just always more things to be excited about. Exactly. And I think that we're, we're going to the job, the job market and the, you know, the way that we work is going to change so drastically in the next years that it's also kind of like provides a nice external reason for being able to maybe like redefine some of the like what is important, you know, in terms of like career and work and how we actually define and value ourselves that I, I hope that there's going to be also sort of this external factor that allows for an excuse of like thinking, rethinking through like what is sort of valued in society and as individuals participating um, in society. Um, yeah, no, and this is, yeah, I, I kind of, the way I kind of view it is anyway, whether or not like AI that's causing these these things or, or other sort of just other trends. Um, it's important for us as a society to have those like conversations and kind of introspection earlier rather than later. Um, like the, the way I kind of view it is um, there's a uh, there's an episode of a Star Trek Next Generation where I think they like thaw out some people from like the late 20th century. And one of them was this like titan of industry. And he's like really interested in uh, like checking like the the value of his portfolio and all these different things. And, and, and then he discovers, oh, they have no money in the future. Um, and so the question is, is that, and he's like kind of distraught. Like he's like, what do I do? And, and, and the answer is like, that's up to you. Like the whole point is like, you have to like look within yourself and figure out like, like rather than kind of using like money or power as kind of these metrics, um, it's all up to us to kind of figure out yeah, what we value. And so um, I, I definitely think the, uh, the sooner each of us kind of begin to grapple with these kinds of things, um, the better uh, we'll be as, as a society. 
Yeah. Well, what do you think about startups as like an exploration mechanism? Like pros and cons. <laughs> you mean in terms of like exploring new ideas or, or what, what do you mean by I that? I guess, um, well, because you work with a lot of founders and startups and probably very different kinds um, of setups. And I've been thinking a lot about like, you know, if I wasn't building a startup, then how would I relate with the world? Because it's such a specific way of relating with the world to really be an entrepreneur and to be building something because it gives you a lot of tools to be a very active member of the world in many ways. And I love that. And um, obviously it has like very specific like incentive models behind it. So like, for example, we're on the venture track. So we have like a certain way that we need to be able to build company in a way to think about objectives and updating them, et cetera. So um, it has a lot of sort of possibilities and resources and a lot of limitations if you go into building like a specific kind of startup, for example. But what do you think about like startups as a tool or a way of like innovating, developing or relating with the world? Um, and then maybe compare that to sort of like what could be potential alternatives if not a startup? That's a really interesting question. Um, I definitely think, I mean, I know startup is definitely a good for kind of exploring, but I, but I would say um, exploring in a specific way, because like it has to kind of cash out in, well, one in terms of like, like venture back startups have to like cash out in terms of like certain types of scale. Um, but I think that's the kind of thing where it's like, okay, I have an idea. It's almost like I have a hypothesis about some sort of in the world or some sort of kind of um, some sort of uh, gap that's there. And then I can test that. And I can kind of test over and over and kind of have this sort of like iterative hypothesis testing. And so this is the whole I, I, like product market fit or whatever it is. Um, but more broadly, I, I mean, that, I, I think testing a kind of scientific method um, and that, I, and people, and the kind of, it's a similar kind of thing with like the lean startup approach is basically the same kind of thing. Um, and so I definitely think this sort of like iterative way of understanding the world um, can definitely be done in a, in a startup mode. It's a, it's the kind of thing where, okay, I have this hypothesis about the world um, and through building, I'm going to actually test whether or not that is something that is true about the world. Um, of course, I think there are many other ways of exploring and kind of like trying to understand reality. Um, but, uh, and of course, like scientific research is another one. Um, you even kind of see somewhat of like a, a mini version of like the scientific method and like the way people play like, complex computer games where it's like you are trying to like interacting with that digital world and actually testing and testing its limits and trying to understand do i actually understand this the model of like the model of the world of this virtual world in my head the correct thing and so um i really think like that sort of kind of like iterative hypothesis driven approach um and sometimes even like not even hypothesis driven it can just be kind of like this sort of like tinkering kind of like undirected approach but kind of like finding ways of interacting uh, with the world um that can work um I would say certain things um, are different, like kind of when it breaks down with the startup. Actually, there's a, uh, an essay a friend of mine wrote um, called, I think it's something to the effect of like, um, like when should an idea that smells like research be a startup? And basically his argument is like, mm -hmm. like there's many kind of like researchy things that are interesting, but only a narrow subset of, of the time does it actually make sense to kind of turn that kind of like researchy kind of approach into a startup. Um, and so I think there are many, work for kind of a subset of certain types of things i feel like if it's like a little too undirected startup and and i would say related to that also is how people think about like time scales um and 
on the one hand, you can definitely have a that you want to last for the long term um, or can have like some sort of very long term kind of goal. Um, but uh, but it needs to kind of still have sort of like iterative short term goals kind of along the way. Um, you can't have one of these things where it's OK, we're going to try something and we'll only know if it succeeds in like 20 years. Um, that's the kind of thing that probably is not particularly well suited for kind of like a traditional style startup. Um, that being said, there is the need for those kinds of like really long bets um, on ideas and, and develop and an exploration. Um, I just don't necessarily think those kind of work within startups. You might need to have like other sorts of, of models. Um, but, uh, but I definitely, th I mean, the kind of think about it though is also um, catalyzing the future. Um, and so you mentioned like kind of ex exploration, like whether or not you have a specific goal in mind or it's kind of a little, a little less directed. Um, there's ways of kind of like lowering the activation energy of whatever kind of future you want. Um, and startups, I think, are a really good way of doing that. Um, the kind of corporation more broadly, I think, is like a really interesting structure for this kind of thing. Um, venture is also really good for this kind of thing of like helping bring about some of these kinds of futures and interesting ideas, um, but in sort of like a like a midway to innovation as opposed to kind of innovating themselves. And so like like as a VC firm, like we're not like we're not the ones building the companies, but we are kind of kind of potential space of the future um, and making bets on ones that we think could actually help the world and actually come to pass. Um, and so I think venture is certainly another way of kind of exploring as well, um, but of sort of like at one level removed from from building. Um, so that's, a, that's another one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I really wish and hope that we can develop more of them. Like we're, I was talking to Paul, who's the founder of Cosmic, also on this podcast. And we had a conversation pretty similar to this one about sort of, like institutions and the need for more humanities for um, also in, like when thinking about sort of development and ideas and innovation to not cut funding on all of them and to include them as a part of the conversation um, much more. And something that I'm really interested in is also like what can, you know, venture funds or like somehow the startup ecosystem or something beyond that also support in terms of like kind of non-objective orientated uh support and innovate for innovation so for example i think like eir models like entrepreneurs and res residents are really interesting as well i think that they're often way too short that they become completely uh, uh, like objective oriented so if you're given 12 months to come up with an idea for a startup and start executing on it you're completely in that kind of objective mode there's very little time to actually you know, like go deep into exploring anything or having time to think about anything uh, in 12 months. But, you know, if we could find ways to fund people for like three years or five years that they don't actually have to worry about paying their rent for like a significant amount of time, like what kind of stuff could come out of there? Or, you know, like to create these kind of like cross a functional interdisciplinary situations between like uh, publicly funded or, 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 you know, academic institutions in the startup world to do these type of things. Uh, I think that would be like super, super interesting. Um, because yeah, like you said, like startups are like kind of going back to the, uh, objective thing. Like they're, you're on the objective machine in so many ways. Like, even if it is a space for exploration, like you have very little time at the end of the day to actually get stuff done and make sure that it works. And if it doesn't work and to go into some other direction to make sure it works, because eventually very quickly you will run out of money. So um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, yeah. No, it's, I, I think there's, 
yeah, we definitely need like new types of like funding mechanisms, like longer term fucking funding mechanisms. Yeah, way like and then going back to like the, kind of these non traditional research organizations, like new structural or institutional forms. Because I think um, we've yeah we've like unnecessarily narrowed um, what we're thinking of, and, and and there's actually a number of people who have kind of talked about um, there was uh, I read an article, an essay maybe a year or two ago about like middle stands, which are kind of these like like, um, like profitable kind of like mid-sized companies that uh, I think they're mainly in Germany that don't like they haven't like taken venture funding or anything like that, but like they're able to do things and they're and like within that they're able to kind of innovate in certain ways. And there's other people who kind of talked about. Um, I'm forgetting the names, but like there are people who are like beginning to experiment with different styles of like tech companies and what that might look like, um, or things that are kind of at the intersection of a tech company and a research organization. And those are all kind of in that like that sort of over edge catalog category. Uh, and then, yeah, we also just need people and organizations or institutions or even like philanthropic foundations to be willing to, yeah, try to fund more of these weird misfit things um, and kind of just give different forms of chance. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm I, I'm cautiously optimistic that like and people are trying this and people are trying yes. to build these things. And and, I, and in terms of what the forms are going to, what they're going to look like, I'm pr fairly agnostic. I kind of take, I kind of, um, I guess like showing kind of like my evolutionary biology roots. Um, I, I take a very kind of evolutionary process, which is like, there are going to be a lot of extinction events along the way, but hopefully through this kind of like vast explosion of different forms, we will eventually hit on some some new forms that actually work well. Um, what they are, what they are, what they're going to look like, I'm not sure, but I'm but I'm I'm excited to see to see yeah. what, what people are trying. Yeah, I feel very optimistic as well. And uh, well, speaking of misfits, uh, you talked about delightful computing before. Maybe we could touch on that a little bit because I know it's a mutual interest for both of us. Um, so when you say delightful computing, what exactly do you mean by that? That's a good question. I, and the way I kind of view it is, I mean, like it's, I mean, most people are, I, mean, I would say, in the, the vast majority of humanity has been touched by technology in some form. Um, you know, like, and I'm using technology in kind of like the modern form, like um, in terms of like computing and things like that. Um, but oftentimes when we think about like our relationship with computing and technology, it's often in the in the context. It's it's often in the context of like the world of big tech or social media's infiltration of our minds and our experiences, um, or people just like being unable to like like stop using their smartphone or whatever it is. And there's often kind of this like tinge of like very impersonal coupled with like adversarial relationship with technology. And I think all those all those concerns. Good. Um, but at the same time, though, alongside all of this, and computing and computation and code, um, there is this kind of like wondrous and and like weirder aspect than we can possibly imagine. And so, like for example, one one just simple way of thinking about it uh, is this idea that and we have had this yearning for millennia of like the, the power to use our words or text to kind of coerce the world around us. This idea of like magic and sorcery and spells, and Beginning I don't know, 75 years ago or so, this became a reality with the ability to actually write computer programs that can actually interact and change the world around us. And this is this is amazing, and, and this is super exciting. And I, I feel like the fact that I mean, computing can allow us to like embody entire virtual worlds within machines, or it can have something to say about uh, biology or about language. And these I know. And so and now I'm kind of like saying more broadly, it's like computing is almost like universal solvent for all these ideas. 
But on a smaller scale, I, I think we need to kind of like revisit the ways in which computing can have this almost like human scale impact. And so when I when I think about for me, like kind of like the touchstones in my own experience with computing. Um, so like when I was when I was very little, um, like my family's first computer was the Commodore VIC twenty, um, and it was like and so there was there was no computer screen. It was you had to actually connect it with your television. Like you didn't have a monitor. Oh, I guess there was a screen, but it wasn't a monitor, a dedicated monitor. It was connected to the television. Um, the computer was inside the keyboard. Uh, you had this um, like the external drive was actually like a cassette player, or like a modified cassette player called like the Commodore data set, um, and it was just this very different thing. And like I didn't know how to program, but I remember seeing uh my father like enter code from magazines or wherever it was um and like write computer programs and then there would be bugs and like there would be all this like weird gibberish on the screen and i could see this clear relationship between text and whatever was happening and, and i feel like now with like an iphone or an ipad like these things are very powerful but they've kind of like they're almost like hermetically sealed like there's very there's a big distinction between creator and user and and i feel like we need to kind of go more towards this kind of like earlier like this earlier time, uh, or at least that, that kind of aesthetic and the kind of like human level approach where there was this kind of like democratization of computing. Now, of course, I, I will caveat that with the fact that like computing was still a lot harder during those days. But like I also remember, and so after our Commodore VIC-20, the next computer we got was uh, one, like a relatively early Macintosh. Um, and we had um, in our Macintoshes, there was um, this, this software called HyperCard. Um, and HyperCard, I and mean, for those of uh, for, for those people who know it, it was like this like amazing, wonderful thing. For those who don't know it, it was kind of this software environment that allowed you to create bespoke websites with like cards and stacks that kind of lived on your own computer. Um, and there was a programming language underneath it, but program you could still make buttons that you would click on them and it would make a sound or kind of jump to another page and show you images. And um, so actually, I think the early version of the like wildly popular computer game Myst was actually developed in hypercard and so it was like this really powerful thing that could be used and so me using hypercard was kind of like that was like my on-ramp to coding and kind of understanding the world of computing and and i and i feel like when i think about those kinds of experiences or even like modern experiences like 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 using a web browser or building one's own website like these kinds of things and they should be available for everyone they should be exciting when we think about like new ways of programming or just like the wonders of html or just uh, like all of the or, or like creative coding where you can kind of like make simple like like enormously delightful animations or programs or, 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 or artworks um using small snippets of code i of code i think of like, those as kind of like this like delightful aspect of computing and uh and i just want there to be more of that and i want people to kind yeah. of recognize that like underneath there is just so much to be excited about about in terms of the world of computing uh and i just want more of that like whether it's like i don't know the world of screensavers that i also love mm -hmm. like or um or like i like, like sim city is amazing and like it was like this kind of like a democratization of of like of simulating an entire city now of course it was a very very simplified version of a city but like, this, is, this is amazing yeah. and so um yeah so I, yeah so, I, so this is like definitely one of the things i think about and i also just think about it in terms of um like when we think about computing um it's not just like this like realm of technology or computer science it, it is this attractor for all these different things. And I, so I just recently wrote this little thing about um, compute, computation as philology. So philology is kind of this like old field like devoted to like the study of languages. But in the, realm, like in the world of humanities, within kind of like academia, um, it was sort of like this like unifying field of knowledge where like 
in the course of learning about learning philology, you would learn linguistics and you would learn anthropology and you might learn archaeology and you would learn history. Um, and it kind of connected all these different things together. And I feel like in many ways, computation is that. It's not this thing that's kind of a silo. It is this attractor of all these different kinds of things. Um, and so I'm currently working on a book that kind of like tries to actually explore this and kind of take this idea seriously. Um, but yeah, I just need, I, I just believe deeply that we need more of this kind of approach. Yeah, like going back to what you were saying about the sort of like feeling of early computing, I think that like for me, I'm not a, I'm not an engineer. And so I, I don't code, but I remember when I was when I was a kid, maybe 10 or 11 or 12, just that feeling of kind of like the early internet energy, obviously it wasn't that early. This is in, you know, in 2004, 2005, but like the feeling of being on my computer in my room was completely different than that feeling that I have today. Uh, probably a part of it is the fact that I have a computer with me essentially all the time on my, my phone all the time. So there isn't that kind of like feeling of, okay, this is my space and time to interact with my computer because I'm essentially interacting with it all the time. But even just as a as a user, when you talk about kind of like the distance between the user and creator being really big, I felt like there used to be a much more of a middle ground of people who were users, but they were sort of like very active, engaged users in a way that they had a relationship to that technology, even if they were sort of users or consumers of it. And like, I, I just remember so vividly, like how excited I would get about going to my computer and blogging because blogging felt like it wasn't the fact that I was just writing. It was it was a completely different thing than if I had written like pen to paper, those same ideas that I wrote on the computer, because I knew that there were so many other people connected to that device that I was like interacting with and I could share with them. No one read the blog. I mean, it was probably like my mom and my sister and like maybe one friend. There was no audience to it, but it felt like I was a part of this like interconnected world of ideas and knowledge and people. And I never forgot that idea or that sensation. And so I think that there's also like a way of just beyond people actually becoming empowered to be like very much in the creator seat or in like the coding seat, there's a there's like a huge arena in which you could actually empower consumers of the internet to sort of engage with uh, with computers in a more active sense, even if they are sort of just using them. I'm doing quotation marks, but obviously people on the podcast can't see that because it's audio only, but you know what I mean. So I think that there's like that kind of like feeling, like it's it's important to also recognize the kind of like feelings that we have in relation to these type of things and to try to think about building products for people who maybe they don't maybe there are people who really don't want to learn how to code and for them to still be able to participate more as creators on computers than just consumers and that has all to do with oh, totally. the product oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. i totally agree like not everyone needs to kind of become a, a programmer or anything like that but i definitely think like that that feeling that you're trying to articulate of kind of this like engaged sense of wonder and creating or kind of like like you're yeah you're not just like a consumer you're kind of you are this sort of like participant in this kind of larger yeah. world of computing i think that's really powerful and like finding ways of allowing that to happen yeah like like, de like democratizing that kind of feeling as opposed to necessarily just like democratizing coding like, I mean, there's many yeah. ways to like build things yourself um without getting down into the code and i actually feel like yeah with certain kind of things around ai this might become enormously more uh, more simple um and that's a wonderful thing like it shouldn't be i am like i in the same way that like i have no desire to like program in like assembly um like, like if you don't want to program in python or whatever like that's fine too like like there there should be other ways means of kind of not just feeling like you're kind of this like consumer 
being held at a distance by the yeah. world of technology, but rather you are kind of this like deep participant. Um, and you're, you're kind of like, yeah, there's like this like engaged citizenry when it comes to computing. Yeah. Uh, I think that's yeah. really, yeah, that, that's really yeah. important. Yeah, kind of similar to how, you know, tech companies have a lot of people that aren't uh, engineers working in them and they're very like equal participants in making sure that the company is being developed and, and move forward and not everyone has to code in it, but people have like a, a more or less in-depth understanding of the technology they're building and its applications and they can be active participants in that. So maybe that's a metaphor that could work there. Um, <laughs> I know we're running out of time here, but I've really enjoyed this conversation. Is there anything else that you think we should end with in terms of uh, the themes that we've discussed or any last words of wisdom you'd like to share? Um, oh, I'm not sure if I have any, any like, words of wisdom, but I would say, I, I would say kind of this, yeah, like this sort of like sense of curiosity and wonder, um, whether it's in terms of like how we think about information or ideas, or even yeah, how we engage with our technology. I think that's just really important. Um, and I think coupling that with kind of this like sense of almost like humility, I feel like there's kind of this like, um, almost like a sense of like hubris around technology nowadays in terms of like what can be done or how, how we can think about it, but recognizing, okay, we don't understand everything, but I'm going to kind of like do my part or understand a little what I can or kind of contribute in some small way. I think those are the ways that almost like going back to what we're saying in terms of like creators and users or whatever, that those are ways that everyone can kind of contribute in, in, uh, in terms of how they think about the world of technology and computing. Um, but yeah, overall, I would say this sort of this like undirected sense of wonder, um, in many ways, I feel like it is it's like underappreciated, but when we think about the world of ideas and technology. Yeah, thirst for discovery. Um, yeah, and I guess, what, what was it like, I, I want to go back to what you said about wonder. I want to remember that now I forget the exact sentence, exact pair of words that you just said. Oh, the, oh, oh an undirected sense of wonder? Is that what yeah, an undirected sense of wonder. I think that summarizes it perfectly. That's a that's a good point to add. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, thanks, Sam, so much. I really appreciate you coming on and, and doing the episode. I think it'll be great. I'm excited for it to come out. Excited too. This is great. Perfect. Thank you.